Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better, and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life, to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in. And together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. On today's episode, I sit down with Jose Arnulfo Cabrera to share his story of being a young immigrant in America and one of the hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients currently awaiting the decision being made on the DACA program that will determine the path of their immediate future. Jose has been involved in advocacy for human rights since he was a child and has been tremendously involved in women's rights and immigration reform efforts, organizing and leading groups to create awareness and take a stand for their rights. In this interview, Jose shares with us what it is like living in America as an immigrant and gives us incredible insight on the issues in the current immigration system in the United States and how immigration has become over-politicized. This interview exposes some very interesting points that will no doubt provide a lot of insight and understanding regarding America's perception and handling of immigration. Hi, Jose. Thank you for being here today to share your story and experience of being in America as an undocumented youth and your insight on the current immigration system in the United States. Glad to be here. So I wanted to tell you, you're doing amazing things right now with Ignatian Solidarity and your own activism efforts. What was it that initially brought you into immigration reform and inspired you to fight for a cause? I know it was my mom. When I was growing up, my my mom was a single mother of three uh, kids. She was undocumented herself, and she saw a lot of injustice happening in her community. So she quit one of her three jobs at the time, and the little free time she had, she would uh, organize, and she started organizing for undocumented workers who were um, not getting their, their fair wages, um, and not, or they weren't giving like, good working conditions. She organized on bringing awareness of our broken immigration system. And near the end of kind of when I started progressing uh, and to the, to the present, she advocates for women who are suffering from domestic violence. And so I, I watched my mom do all this as a little kid. Um, I, was in, I spent more times in rallies and marches than I did like playing soccer with my friends. Uh, and eventually they, her and her friends, they tricked me into sharing my immigration story around a little bit before 2010 um, when the DREAM Act had a lot of momentum and they knew that I would be one of the, the folks who would qualify for this. So they tricked me into sharing my immigration story and then they tricked me into organizing little rallies here and there and I just got the organizing bug and, and I kept doing it and kept doing it and now I'm here. Wonderful. What, how did they trick you? <laughs> so every weekend my mom would we would go to a random church and my mom would talk about being undocumented and one day we pulled up to this church 
and our good friend, his name was Don Sherman, um, he said, as we're walking into the church, he said, oh, um, I forgot to tell you, you're going to be speaking. Um, and so you're going to have to sit up there uh, and you're going to tell everyone your story. Um, and you'll do great. Just do it like your mom does it. Have fun. So you didn't even prepare or anything like that. You just had to completely just impromptu give a speech. Yeah, uh, it was it was chaotic. Um, very, I was nervous. I was I was in the seventh grade when this happened. Mm-hmm. So it was it was like a fun, scary moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and now when I when I share my story or I'm going to speak, I get those butterflies in my stomach, and it's. It's like a very familiar feeling mm-hmm. um, because it's also scary, you know, to, to speak in front of people. Well, do you think you can share your story with us today? Yeah, of course. So I, I was born in a small town in called Loma Bonita, Oaxaca. It was called the town of the three lies. It was not Loma, it was not Bonita, and it was not Oaxaca. And my my mom and I and my, my father, uh, we were... We lived dirt poor. Uh, we didn't have much to live off of. Or uh, and when my when I came along in the picture, my father uh, did what any Mexican man who grew up in a small village and was dirt poor would do: is he came to the to the U.S. to work and send money back home. And when I was four, my parents kind of realized that me growing up in Mexico would would not give me many opportunities. And so my father came back, and that's also when I met my father for the very first time. He left when I was six months old. And my parents decided to come to the U.S. with the goal of getting me to school, me getting an education, and working to become a a someone. Because there's no visa for someone who is dirt poor uh, and wants to come to the U.S. to work, my parents had to... They had to cross the border without without inspection, meaning that they didn't tell the U.S. government that they were coming. They just came. And it was hard. It was a hard thing. Um, my mom and I actually, my mom and I actually got separated at the border. Um, and so, so that was challenging of itself. We were separated for, for three days and four nights. And then when we were reunited, you know, we kind of just, brushed away all of the traumatic experience that we had just gone through. Um, and my parents were happy. They were like, we're in the land of the free home of the brave. We're, you know, we're, we're going to make so much money. We're gonna, everything's going to change. Um, and they would say like, you're going to get an education. You're going to be a someone. It turned out that when I started kindergarten, my teacher told my parents, Oh, he has a, we think he has a learning disability. He has to be tested. And so at the same time, I'm still learning English. So I get tested for all of these things. Um, The more tests I took, the more like problems I had, the more therapists I needed. And for my mom had a sixth grade education. My father had no education. They interpret all of this as your child cannot learn. And so it was like a, it was like my, my parents' dreams were shattered because they thought our kid can't learn um and and it caused a lot of issues uh between my parents um caused a lot of issues for my father um he he started drinking a lot um and 
became very abusive of, of alcohol and then drugs. And he eventually left uh, me, my mom. And at the time, it, it was my two little sisters, Esther and Karina, who were U.S. born citizens. And so my mom did the best she could um, to raise us. We experienced homelessness for a year. And then we were able to like get a small one-bedroom apartment in, uh, in a rough neighborhood in Cincinnati, Ohio, called Evanston. And that's, that's when my mom saw a lot of the injustice. And that's when she started organizing and advocating. And, and the moral of like the story of, of my schooling, it, it turned out it was just dyslexic. But I couldn't speak English, so I couldn't like advocate for myself when I was getting all these tests. Um, and you know, I was able to, to go to high school and then go to college on, actually, I got so many academic uh, scholarships that I was on a full ride at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. And here I am. That's an incredible breakthrough of a story for you. And I'm sorry that you're, that you had to experience what you experienced early on with your dad. Do you know at this point where your dad is? No, we've, we've lost contact with him since I was a very, very young kid. He left when I was eight. So about that time. Yeah. How was it? growing up in America, not having a father or at least another individual there to support financially the family and having it be all your mom. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I mean, you're Latina too. You know how in the Latino like family structure, the man brings home the money or the bread and the, the woman stays home and cooks and cleans. And so those those dynamics were never in my house. Um, but it was also hard because the, the amount of time we lived with my father in the U.S., my mom never really left outside the kitchen. So she didn't know where the grocery store was. She didn't know where to pay the bills, when to pay them. Um, she didn't know how to drive. And Cincinnati is really not like a, a very public transportation city. Like we have a bus system, but it, it's extremely unreliable. And so... I think the the blessing of all the that was that my mom was able to like really step up and like destroy any preconception that she wouldn't make it as a single mom and like she managed the bus system where she can get to anywhere she was able to to like hustle her way to making sure that we never mess miss the rent uh because we knew like when he first left uh, we were evicted from our home because she didn't know how to pay bills and she didn't even know how to get a job. So that never happened to us because she'd hustled. And just watching her, like my entire life, in the, the Latinx culture, I was always perceived as, oh, because you didn't have a dad, you, you weren't going to be much valued as a man or you weren't going to know how to work. But man, my mom hustled more than any guy I've ever met. <laughs> And like my work ethic is all because of what I see her and how she, she works. And even to this day, I, I was actually, I was home for the weekend and I'm working on my computer on Friday um, and I can hear my mom cooking uh, because she's making like posada for our church. And at the same time, she's organizing her nonprofit on the phone. And then she gets a call about a woman who was like suffering from who called her a few days ago, who's suffering from domestic violence and she needs like 
immediate assistant and she's like saying okay what do you need and then she's like on the phone while cooking posada a pozole and like telling people okay she needs this i need you to get here like it's just it's it's incredible just watching her so so it was a blessing to have her yeah that's amazing that you were able to have that as as an example growing up and how has that support helped you to make your own progression through life and go through high school and then get in the Xavier University. How has that example mm-hmm. helped you? She, she never gave up. And, she, and that was very expected from, from me to never give up. I remember very clearly when I was in high school. So like another little backstory, when I, was in, when I started high school, um, they didn't think I would graduate because there was just so many external factors in my life when I was growing up that I really didn't pay much attention in school. And so I had a, a large, a very big gap between me and like everyone who was in remedial classes. Um, and so I had to work to just compete with them. And there were times when I, I remember one day, specifically, I, I it was a long night and I walked over my mom and was like, I just want to give up. Like, this is too hard. And she said, we don't give up in this house. That's not what we're about. And if you give up, you're giving up on all of us and you're giving up on me. And it was like, okay. And then she also, as I was walking away, she yells like, also, if you give up, I'm going to send you back to El Rancho, to the village, and you're going to be picking up the cow poop with your grandpa. Oh my God, what a powerhouse of a woman. That's incredible. I want to talk about now having grown up in that struggling environment to mm-hmm. create a name for yourself and to be someone like your parents wanted you to be. Mm-hmm. You were able to receive or be part of the DACA program, which is mm-hmm. the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which means it gave you somewhat of an opportunity uh, to do something with your life. It was deferred deportation with that, and you were able to get mm-hmm. a work permit so you could you could start making some money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us first about when you were able to receive that. How was that experience for you? It was um, it's kind of a bitter moment because um, I'd already been organizing for that. A little backstory on DACA: we had to fight for DACA. President Obama didn't just wake up one day and gave that to us. We, there were people in D.C. lobbyists who were fighting for that day and night, and we were pushing, and organizers on the field were pushing that. And so it was announced in the summer of 2012, same a campaign year for him. He was trying to seek re-election. And so what a lot of folks did is they did a civil disobedience, and they did sit-ins in his campaign offices, and they shut down his campaign for, like I think, three days, if I'm not mistaken. And right after, shortly after that, he announced the DACA program. Well, we did one in Cincinnati. And one of my kind of mentors, um, his name was Marco Saavedra, he told me, hey, Jose, do you want to do the civil disobedience? And I was, I said, yeah, like, hell yeah. And I got ready for it. Um, but at the last minute, my mom said, no, like, you're just too young to be doing that. And so I didn't do it. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to disobey my mom, but I always felt, and even to this day, I feel like I, I didn't do my part to get DACA. 
And so when I got it, it, it still felt like I didn't deserve it because I didn't do my part. Um, because I had the opportunity to do my part to get DACA status. Whereas Marco Saavedra, who did do the civil disobedience, um, he didn't get it. And he kept organizing. And he's actually, I believe, if it's not this week, it's next week, but he, he's applying for asylum and his asylum case comes up. And so it's, it was a bitter moment. But I used my DACA as a rocket fuel and to just go out there. I mean, a lot of scholarships were able to open up for a lot of DAC recipients uh, when we were applying for college. So I was able to apply for a lot more scholarships. And then I was able to get a job. I actually got my first community organizing job in Cincinnati when I was in college. And it was all because I had a work permit. And then I was lobbying on the Hill for nine months right after college. And again, because I I had DACA. Now I'm here organizing a Jesuit network across the country, and I'm able to do that because I have DACA. And I continue to do that, and I continue to do my work because I I truly believe that that we will seek humane immigration reform in my lifetime, and I'm working towards that. Uh, And that's that's what my mom, her speeches when, when she was out in crowds, she, I mean, also to see my mom speak is like, she comes up to like here to my, to my shoulders, but when she speaks, she grew like 10 feet tall. I'm pretty sure in a past life, she was a revolutionary fighter because when she talked, she, would, she could lead everyone. And I was one of those persons that like believed in this notion and this dream that we could get humane immigration reform. And, and because of DACA, I'm able to like act on that and continue on fighting for that. So currently though, DACA's future of remaining as an active program is uncertain. And so yeah. what do you feel about that current situation and how would its termination affect you personally? It, it's, uh, it's, again, another like bitter moment. Um, it means that, that it's going to be harder for me to, to continue my work, to continue in this path. I, I don't think it, it's going to eliminate me from it. I just think it's going to make it harder for me. Whatever happens with the Supreme Court, I think it's going to happen. But I think it, it's also, it's a good, the, the sweetness of it is that it gets us mobilized and it gets hopefully the Congress mobilized to, to actually, instead of giving us a, a temporary solution, temporary work permit, to actually working towards a pathway to citizenship for undocumented youth and DACA recipients. I wanted to just quickly highlight this as well, because DACA is important for so many people. There are 800,000 individuals in this country that rely on this for their jobs and for their families. You working with Ignatian Solidarity, you have a network of people, you're helping families, you're talking to other individuals. Can you give us some examples of families in your network and how you see this affecting them as well? Yeah, I actually could speak more to the students so so in our ignatian network it's it's a lot of universities and high schools and and parishes and for the high school students and these are kids who are they have they have some really big dreams and a lot of ambition in them you know i've met students who they want to be doctors they're and they're actively working on it that they want to be engineers they want to go into the business sector and they want to be entrepreneurs 
they want to go into policy and they want to like go to international policy and they have all of this drive in them and they also are blessed to be at some of like the best uh, Jesuit universities in the country. They're so impressive students, but the fact that they, they see their DACA being removed, it makes them wonder what, what does this mean for me? Uh, and I, I actually don't spend a lot of time talking with them and thinking through that because I don't think it's healthy for them. I don't think it's mentally healthy for them. It's definitely not mentally healthy for me. We have to like keep pushing until we do have that like hard stop. And then we have to figure out how else can we do it? Um, my mom always says, Tienes que encontrar tu mania. you have to figure out your like your trick, you know? And so you, we have to figure out a trick afterwards, whatever happened. But a lot of it is, is helping them see, okay, you, you could be sad, you could be crushed about it, or you could take this energy that you have and you could put it to actively mobilize your community to pressure Congress to pass a legislation that would give uh, you and me and the 800,000 DACA recipients a pathway to citizenship. So that's the goal, right? Yeah. Moving forward now with DACA being just up in the air, you know, that it's a temporary, it was always meant to be a temporary solution. You know, that issue of having to always renew it and hope and pray, you know, that it'll be renewed. Like having to rely on that is, can be very, very discouraging. And so when it comes to the reform and immigration reform and even DACA with this program, like the next step, what is it that you would like to see happen with the immigration policies surrounding uh, not only the topic of childhood arrivals, but mm-hmm. of even adult immigrants in this, in this country. Yeah. So uh, this past summer, the house passed HR six, the American dream and promise act that would give a pathway to citizenship for undocumented youth DAC recipients, TPS holders and DED holders. There are two bills that, do, would do the same thing. You have the, the DREAM Act of 2019 that would give a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients and undocumented youth. And then you have the, the SECURE Act that would give a pathway to citizenship for TPS holders and DD holders. At the current moment, Mitch McConnell said that he is not going to allow for a vote for the DREAM Act and hasn't even mentioned the SECURE Act. So politics aside, he's stopping regular order from happening. I mean, this is part of our, our congressional order is you introduce a bill, you put it through a committee, the committee marks it up, and then you put it up for a vote, right? Now, the Judiciary Committee, who is in charge of the DREAM Act, is not marking it up because the speaker said he's not going to allow for a vote. So he's not even allowing for regular order. We are just simply asking, allow this for regular order, allow it to do its normal process, allow for the democratic process to happen. And that's not happening. And another big thing that we're also making sure is it has to be a clean dream act. It has, it cannot be attached to any funding mechanisms that is going to continue funding enforcement programs in our, in our governmental system that continue to harm and terrorize our immigrant communities. Because every year Congress has to pass appropriation bills that fund the government, which is why sometimes this past December, we had a whole shutdown. 2017 was also the same year that President Trump decided to end the program. So we were, we were pressuring and we were really pushing hard. Well, they wanted to do is they would give us the DREAM Act, 
but they they were also going to increase funding for ICE, uh, CBP, and fun and militarizing the wall. What this money, as I've learned as a lobbyist, and now as I get more strategically understand our process and the, the politics behind all this, what they're really saying is we're going to put more money into places where we're going to do very large scale raids, like happened last, this past summer in Mississippi. We're going to continue to militarize our borders. And so the way I see it is I'll get the, the piece of paper that says I, I'm a U.S. citizen, while at the same time my mom's getting deported. And so we're not going to be used as bargaining chips for that. And we're not going to throw our parents under the bus or our undocumented siblings who would not qualify for this. That was the exchange that was presented then back in 2017. It was giving mm-hmm. you guys the DREAM Act, but it was not clean. It was with mm-hmm. the, at the consequence of the older generations and providing funding, putting funding into that to be able to find these people and deport them mm-hmm. or prevent, again, you know, more um, migrants from coming up from the South. So it was not necessarily yeah. a clean deal. And to add to that, it was also adding to the inhumane treatment that people are put in while they're in sent centers. This past year, we have had seven children who have died while in detention, while in the U.S. custody. And those are just children. We're not even talking about the adults. That's children. Yeah. And that doesn't even account for the ones that are separated from their families either. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that brings into light that this next topic, I'd like you to give us some insight on, and it's regarding the issues in society that we're facing right now regarding immigration. So mm-hmm. what, is, what are the, some of those problems that are contributing to a broken immigration system? I think the biggest one is lack of knowledge and understanding of that we have a broken system. Um, you know, I, I go around and, and give talks. And even when I was a community organizer in Cincinnati, I would go to churches and talk about, like, this is why we have a broken immigration system. And the kind of the normal conversation always asks is, well, well, my, my grandparents or my parents did this um, back in the early 1900s or the mid 1900s. Like, why, why can't you do the same? Because the difference is those laws have changed and they're a lot different. Like my family, there was no process for us to, to get a visa to come to the U.S. And there were so many like factors that contribute to our forced cause to leave. And so it's those myths, those myths that people just don't understand that why we have a broken system. This idea that, you know, people come to this country and they have a a baby, like they call them the anchor babies, that's a big lie. But also I think it's another big one is, is just the fear that people have of seeing someone who doesn't look like them, seeing someone that comes into that, the people, when they go to the grocery store, it's, it's a new person and what's in the counter looks different. And so it's, it's just this fear. And I think it's, it's a fear that we've always had. I mean, since the beginning of this country, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote in one of the newspapers that he owned that we needed to stop German immigrants from coming to the colonies because then all the colonies would speak German. And so it's this constant fear. And we saw it with the Irish the Jewish community, the Italians, uh, and it continues on. Now, what I would say the biggest difference now is that 
a lot of the new immigrants who are coming are just people of color. And that, that is very scary for a lot of folks, and especially in a country where I, and I, I really do think that this president has really opened, opened our eyes to how white supremacy is still very present in our culture and in our governmental system. Well, I mean, just with the words that he says, when it comes to what you were saying regarding the uh, perception, right, that Americans, a lot of people have on immigrants, on anyone of any different color, of any different culture coming into America. Well, first of all, let's highlight those those perceptions, right? Like those myths. Um, I can put mm-hmm. out a few of those just because of of stats that have been exposed. It's public knowledge when it comes to economy. It's like immigrants mm-hmm. don't harm your economy. Actually, they contribute mm-hmm. to it. They actually create jobs. They contribute to more mm-hmm. businesses being opened than native-born mm-hmm. Americans. And so... Um, that was an interesting thing. But when it comes to even if you could talk about immigration being a large focus, that issue that's used in presidential campaigns mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. current campaign tactics have influenced America's feelings towards immigration. And so like, how have you seen that be the case? And do you feel like that's in consequence thwarting efforts in immigration reform? Yeah. I mean, in the 2018 election, you had a growing amount of local and state and also congressional races where, unfortunately, let's say the truth, but they were all Republican candidates who had very anti-immigrant, very fear-mongering campaigns that, I mean, our current president started his campaign saying with Mexicans are rapists, drug dealers, You, you can't like just overlook that. And I know in, uh, I think it was Georgia, I forget the candidate's name, but he did a, he had a, an ad where he said, I'm going to rally up all the quote illegal immigrants in this truck and join me. But at the same time, this is also a growing thing. Um, as you read into the history more, this happened a lot in California in the, early 90s where they had fake uh, almost like fake or exacerbated footage of people you know crossing the border uh, and saying that this was the reality of it that immigrants were taking over california stuff like that or mexicans were taking over california so it's something that's growing but i i feel that we see a more a lot of this because i mean trump's whole campaign was fear mongering of immigrants and that won him the election and no one thought he would win i mean he was the underdog for the republican and then the underdog in the actual when he was up against clinton and so if he won it like why wouldn't other people do the same thing mm-hmm. uh, and i i would also say like i think it's more just a tactic to like get voters scared and to vote for them and i wouldn't be surprised if the people who are running these ads if they believe it or not. That's a very, very powerful point is, you know, this tactic is creating now a fad among these campaigners. It's like the thing to do now, the thing to, to focus on is immigration to the point where now they're, they're trying to reform legal migration mm-hmm. and make that as an issue, a problem. And it's affecting more and more people. And it's just kind of like when, where is it going to end? 
you know, and it's still contributing to like a patchwork sort of solution, no Mm -hmm. overall complete humane solution. So I wanted to ask you all of these claims, all of these myths that are Mm -hmm. out there when it comes to the case of DACA recipients, I mean, you're one, you can identify with that. You are Mm -hmm. surrounded by, you know, TPS recipients, DACA recipients. How have their lives, like your experience uh, of how they live their lives proven that these pervasive claims are untrue and unjust? I mean, where to start? Um, I think half of my relatives all own their own business. Actually, when I go to, to church, half of the people there own their own business or they have a little side hustle and slowly they're growing. This notion of that immigrants don't pay taxes is also a big lie because, well, one, the IRS gives undocumented immigrants uh, an 18 number that they can use to work with. Um, and the, all these like tax services, they, they have been switching a lot of their ads to be in Spanish, especially in Cincinnati where there's a growing immigrant, like his Latinx community that's rapidly growing. And a lot of like H&R Block, Tax Liberty, they're all changing their ads in Spanish because they know that like they're going to want to do their taxes. You know, you can't, when you put everyone, when you say like all of these people are criminals or bad or drug dealers, like it's the same thing to say all white people are racist or in the KKK because that's not true. Uh, you can't fit, try to fit a whole group of people in a box. I'm not going to say that there are not bad apples or but at the same time the systems that were put in place it it causes people to do unrational things but the majority of us we simply just we want to come here we want to work we want to give our kids a better life make sure they go to school and live peacefully and happily you're saying the system has things in place that make people do unrational things what are some examples of those for example, if you are, and I know this a lot because my mom does this, uh, if you are a woman and your husband is beating you, you're not going to go to the police. Because if you go to the police, your perception is to think that the police are going to ask me for my documentations and they're going to arrest me and they're going to deport me. And they're going to deport me back to my native country, the same country where they'll probably deport my abuser. And then it's just going to go downhill for me. Uh, the notion of like, So in Cincinnati, in one of the toughest neighborhoods, they call immigrants or the growing Latinx community in Cincinnati is Guatemaltecos. So they call Guatemaltecos walking ATM machines because Guatemaltecos, well, a lot of them are unfortunately undocumented and they can't get uh, a bank. So they carry their full week or month of pay in their pockets. So they go and they would rob them and they take all their money. Now, when a, a person... Normally, you would announce, you would say that to the police, you would tell them the description, but their fear is, why would I go to the police? Because then they're going to ask me for my documentations. So this is a system that it's like, how do you support someone? How do you help them get out of it? And it's a full month of pay and they have families to feed. Yeah. What really hurts me about that is the fact that so many people go through society like just walking out in public and they see Hispanics and, you know, I see people and I'm thinking to myself, you know, my, my, my mom was in those shoes too, my sister. And 
think to myself, man, they might be undocumented. You kind of, kind of feel, get a feel sometimes and you're like, well, to me, you know, that's my brother, that's my sister, but them to others, it's kind of like how much fear must they be living in on a daily basis, right? Where they don't know where maybe 10 steps ahead or at any stoplight, like they'll get pulled over and they'll get arrested and mm-hmm. deported, especially with the administration that we have currently like how yeah. much scary it is. So that that really, really, I mean, and your story, that really hurts. And and to the, the thing about the fear of having a police officer behind you, um, like even I mean, for me. I mean, I, I get scared of it and I'm a citizen. Right. For me, like who, who I have a driver's license, I have DACA, I'm protected for deportation. Anytime there's a police officer, anytime I'm like, uh, so I live in Cleveland, but my family lives in Cincinnati. I just have to take 70, 71 North and I'm like in one place or another in four hours. Anytime I'm driving through that and I see a police officer, a police officer is passing me by. Like I can feel like all of my, my guts and, and like the first fear in my body is that I'm going to get deported. And it, it doesn't, the police officer doesn't even have to be noticing me. But that fear of like, I'm going to get deported where I do this for a living and I know my rights and I know that that is like not possible, right? I still have that fear. And it's ingrained into us because we're like, I I remember the, when I first arrived to this country, my like orientation was that you're, you're here illegal and anything you can do, you can get deported. So don't ever talk to a police officer. But then I go to school and they say, if you're in danger, talk to a police officer. It doesn't play out that way. And it's just a very sad situation. I did want to ask you because I did want to, I want us to now present the alternative, the, the other reality. And it's the reasons why people do come and migrate to mm-hmm. this country. And so despite the general belief of the motive, which is, you know, just to use this country and to have them pay their Medicare and Medicaid and... What is a true driving force for thousands of immigrants seeking to come into the United States? I think it's the violence, the economic hardship, and the ecological or just climate change in general. Uh, I think those are the three major factors. It's a fact that the, the U.S. is kind of a powerhouse for wanting and the, the hugest demand for drugs. And so there, I mean, Mexico has a big cartel problem and a big like narco trafficking problem. And so that causes a a jumble of mess throughout Mexico and into Central America. It it brings a lot of hardships. And and with that comes also a lot of violence. I can't remember the name of the study, but so El Salvador is one of the most dangerous countries in the world more dangerous than Syria. Nicaragua is third or second, and Guatemala is rising at an alarming rate that in, I believe this, uh, and I can, I can send you this study so you can share with your folks, but uh, in a few years, Guatemala and El Salvador are going to be fighting for the first because there's just so much violence. And these are countries that are the size of like U.S. states. And the population is probably less than like a major city in the United States. So gangs run it. And then the economic hardship is we have, 
My family came because of the result of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Both of my grandfathers were farmers. And when NAFTA came along, I, NAFTA was inactive in 1994. I was born in 1995. By the time I was born and by the time we, we came over, it was 1999, that was almost you know, five years of NAFTA happening. And farmers like my grandfather could not grow more cops. They could not harvest more food. And they could not compete with U.S. companies. And there was literally no jobs for my father and mother to like work on. And there was no opportunity. And those hardships still exist today. Mexico has uh, tried to adjust to NAFTA, but they're still economically not doing well. And there's so much corruption. And same with the Central Americans, you had CAFTA, which is the Central American Free Trade Agreement. And the same thing happened. Now, I will say, though, the Northern Central American countries, which is always seen as the Northern Triangle, those countries have been historically since since the 80s and 70s and 60s, they have been in, in political and uh, socially unrest. Um, El Salvador had major, major um, inhumane treatment. I mean, and here at Nation Solidarity Network, we, are, we, we talk a lot about the Jesuit martyrs that were killed in El Salvador uh, at the Yuca. And the soldiers that killed the Jesuit priests were trained on School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. So there was a lot of political unrest and the U.S. funneled a lot of money to the, the group in the Central American countries that were continuing the unrest and continuing the injustice and economic injustice. Uh, and right now, what we're seeing as climate change is affecting all of us, the thing is, it's uh, underdeveloped countries who f- see the, the changes of climate and the first boy that died in U.S. custody this year when the New York Times did an article when they went back to his village and they talked and they tried to figure out who this boy was, they realized that he was one of, I believe, 12 or 13 uh, siblings and his father was a farmer and his father could not grow any, could not have any harvest. And so the boy realized, like, there's nothing for me here, so I'm going to go to the, to the U.S., and it's, it's a growing amount of number of people who are coming because of these uh, ecological hardships that, that we are imposing because we can easily pay not to see all of these yeah, ecological changes happening. And so that comes to show that, you know, what, I mean, honestly speaking, so many people know that Central Americans, I mean, people from the south of the border are coming to seek refuge. They're coming to seek asylum. Mm-hmm. And I think even that comes into question the term immigrants, you know, that we refer mm-hmm. to them as immigrants when that communicates people leaving peaceful conditions. But if that's not the case, it's like, are we wrong to even be referring to them as immigrants? Should that just be refugees or asylum seekers? Because that's what they're doing. They're trying to come here to seek safer conditions, you know, yeah. better economic conditions, because it's just not inhabitable where they are coming from. So would you say then my family would be more of asylum? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, definitely I, I, can, I can see it with, with the folks, that, uh, a lot of the folks who are coming, a lot of them are, are asylum seekers seeking asylum. 
I think even for families, like if it for for abusive environments, right? Like if their mm-hmm. own country can't support them, it's going to be more prevalent maybe in in like the poor countries, right? So these families yeah. for their children, these mothers for their children are seeking asylum. I mean, and trying to run away, right? It's like where are they going to be able to find that? So, I mean, even on the, in that regard. I would constitute that as someone who's seeking asylum. And you know that what's what's going on with the asylum cases right now, what's going on at the border, that's like deserves its own podcast. Um, because like when we when you talked about how the the this administration is really even bringing a hardship on legal immigration, seeking asylum is a legal thing. It was happened right after World War II when all of these countries recognized that we were all wrong to deny asylum to Jewish immigrants who were trying to escape Europe. And U.S. was one of those countries that like, did not allow for Jewish immigrants to come. And so we, had, we built these asylum laws, and the U.S. is changing them with the goal of hopefully reducing the, the flows of migration. I wanted to ask you when it came to enforcement policies for mm-hmm. immigration, what's the current feeling in the immigrant community um, with how everybody is taking that? And this is regarding like the child separation policy, like ICE raids, detention centers. It's a fear that is, that was put on steroids. Like this, this fear is not new to us. I mean, I remember when, when Trump was very recently elected and people asked me like, how does your family feel? Like, how are you? I was like, this is something, this is not new. Like, like, yes, Obama was a, a Democrat, but a lot of what Obama was doing, Trump just put on steroids. The, I mean, let's not forget that Obama deported more immigrants on record than any other president. I mean, George Bush deported immigrants differently, and so he couldn't put them on record. But Obama, what he did is he put them on record, and we were able to see And On record, he deported more immigrants than anyone else. We had ICE raids all around. The big reason of push for DACA was because undocumented uh, undocumented youth were getting deported left and right, and they like he ran Obama ran on a campaign of passing comprehensive immigration reform, passing the Dream Act, and that hadn't happened in his first term. So it's it's a fear that's just put on steroids, but it was always there, um, and and especially when when the president decides to one day say like tweet. Uh, we're going to start making a bunch of raids in these states and they don't happen. That, that is just it's like, scary. It's like preparing for it. Right. And then when you realize like he, he, they, they decided to backtrack on that because everyone like organizers like me were able to like get Intel to like help organize communities to make sure that everyone was protected. And I remember, I think it was either October, November, of 2017, there was massive rates. So if you don't know, Cincinnati, if you look at the state of Ohio, Cincinnati is kind of on, or southwest of the state. And so we're, when you think about the, the, the tri-state area, you think of Cincinnati, northern Kentucky, and um, eastern Indiana, southeast Indiana. And in northern Kentucky, there was massive uh, raids that were happening and we were we were and I was a community organizer at the time and I was seeing reports of like of people saying that an ICE agent knocked down their win, their door and beat up the person that was in front of them um, of ICE agents like 
tackling people down to the ground. Uh, and these were in community home and like in homes, not, not community homes, but they're in just home, regular homes. And so it, it's a fear that like, it, it was always there, but it's more aggressive. And, and when you see the ice rates, like the Mississippi one, and then a year, the summer before that, we had a massive raid in Northern Ohio. It just brings so much more fear and uncertainty. But I think what we were not talking enough about is the traumatic experience that children are facing. And these are U.S. citizens who are, will grow up who are voters here. And that they're seeing that their own government believes that they should be separated from their families and is ripping them apart from their families and then is putting them in foster care systems. And I remember when, when Trump was first elected, my, my little sister's school asked me to come and talk to the kids. And it was a, a K through eighth grade. And I talked to every, every class. And I think it was either the, f- the fifth or fourth grade class when I was talking. This kid says, what am I going to do if I come home and, and my parents aren't there because they got picked up? Uh, and I said, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have, we have these family preparedness packets. We, we're going to, um, we'll find someone who, who can take care of you and we'll figure out um, how we can get you reunited. And we'll maybe, you know, we'll, we'll work on getting you dual citizenship in your own country so you can go back and live with your parents. Well, one, when I said, we'll find someone that can, that can take care of you and can help you figure out to get reunited. He says, well, we just moved to Cincinnati. We don't, I don't have any relatives or friends. And my parents are scared to talk to the neighbors because they think they'll deport us. This is a, a, a fifth grader, a fourth grader. I can't remember what grade he was in, but this is, this is the traumatic a child. Experience. Yeah. And they're a U.S. citizen. They're voters. How do you think that they're going to grow up perceiving society? I don't know. And I'm scared to think of that possibility because I also, like, this is my, my country. I live here. I, I grew up here. I have intentions of staying here, of raising my own kids. And I also have intentions of finding ways how I can support my, my Latinx community. But if I have kids who are growing up and they just already have this distaste and, and, and fear towards the country, uh, I don't know how that's going to work out. And I, I do think this is where we, as the Latinx community, really have to like look at the Black community and figure out how did they figure that out? Because Wow. They also know, they know what it feels mm. like to have a government that's actively working against you. Against it's, it's part of our history. And, and they know kids who have seen all of this injustice from their own government. So it's how can we help, how can the, like, maybe the black community can help us? How do we support them? Like, mentally. Work together. Work together. Right. Because it, it, it's, it's really a scary thought to think of that. And, you know, and, I'm sh- and I know you've done podcasts of like uh, terrorism and, and extreme human rights. Things. Right. Yeah. With human so like, rights. you know, when you put in these situations, how do you help someone like get out of that mental state where they have so much hatred because of this one act that was happened to them? How do you work to, to heal that? And also how do we work to just heal them so they could love and accept this country? Absolutely. Because I love and, and I love this country so much, but yet this country and this government has actively worked against me my entire life. Yeah. And how do we teach that to them? Yeah, and how do we make a change? And I think you brought such a powerful point with that. 
because what we don't want is a society and our next generations to grow up not wanting to get involved because of fear. And mm-hmm. so they're not, they're not speaking up about issues because they don't, they don't want to vote because they don't believe because they're, they, they, they have lost their hope in humanity and in this, in this country. And from what I've gathered from the individuals who have I've interviewed and who have done something positive out of a negative experience and are now living a life with a mission where they want to help others is that they found a purpose. So they, they turned that experience and they said, I, I now, because of this experience, can understand others and can help others because I have a different way of viewing it. And so they've, they've now developed a purpose. And, and that, you know, is, is, it's hard because it's on a person-by-person basis. And so, yeah. you know, trying to see how we, as our, the next generation, can influence others, inspire them to tell them, hey, you know, there is still hope is something that is going to be an ongoing journey and, and something that's going to be needing work on. But I appreciate that feedback. What do you feel we need to do to begin taking the right steps towards the proper immigration reform? Before you go out and, and get involved, I think the most important thing is you have to educate yourself about our broken immigration system. You have to understand what are the myths and facts in this whole immigration conversation that our country has been having for a very long time. And then go and look at what your elected officials are doing uh, and how they're working to solve and, and fix our broken immigration system. And this isn't just um, a federal thing or we're not just don't just look at what's what's happening in Washington, D.C., but also look what's happening in city council and state legislators. Because as a community organizer, I can tell you that what city council and uh, or your state legislator does and the policies that they implement uh, towards undocumented immigrants affects so much more than than what the federal government does or what the what happens in Washington, D.C. For example, like one of the biggest things that I think was very important when I was near the end of my, my community organizing years and that I know a lot of community organizers uh, around the country that are actively working in different spaces, getting state legislators to allow undocumented immigrants to obtain a driver's license. And a lot of people see this as part of the kind of liberal agenda for immigration, but I think it's so much bigger than that. Because think about it for a second. If a, if a state gives driver's license to everyone, it's ensuring that everyone who's driving in their states knows how to drive, knows the, the laws, the rules, and what signs mean in the road. And this way, we know that everyone is safe. We know that everyone who's on the road, who's driving, knows how to drive knows the rules and the laws of the road and it makes our community so much more safer and so it's these little things it's what's going on in city council and state legislature that that could affect and kind of get us even closer to uh, fixing our broken immigration system but um, this is not to say like do not just focus on what is happening on dc a lot of that is still important and we still need to to push our 
our elected officials that are in D.C. to to advocate for good policy and to give us good policy uh, that will really work to fix our broken immigration system. So it's knowing what it's educating yourself, knowing what what your elected officials are doing in city council, state legislator and in D.C. and then advocating to them, making sure that you're telling them, hey, this is what what I stand uh, I want you to support this bill or I don't support this bill. Um, I want you to support this policy and, and whatnot. Now, here's another big way that you can really get involved is Googling if there's any local organizations or organizing happening in your community that is actively educating and advocating for fixing our broken immigration system or how to support undocumented immigrants and getting involved with them, plugging into their work, supporting their work, spreading out their work. For example, like for us, we have right now uh, an action alert that if you fill it out, you can send it up to your senators in Washington, D.C., and it's going to ask your senators to urge uh, Senator Mitch McConnell for allow regular order on the DREAM Act or allow for a vote in the DREAM Act. We're not asking him to support it. We're just asking him to to allow for a vote so so the democratic process can happen. And that's one way. And I assure you that there, if you find a group in your community who's doing organizing, who's advocating for, for fixing our broken immigration system, they're going to have things that you can do to to talk to your elected officials, to advocate. Um, and that's also a big way for you to get educated more, for you to understand what's currently happening. Instead of just watching a debate on CNN where people are yelling at each other or Fox News, where an organization that will give you raw information, information that helps you understand what is really going on right now in the immigration world. So it's getting plugged into them. But I also know that, you know, Many of you, that might be a lot to, because you have kids, you have a family, but as long as you know what they're doing and you, you support their work and you also gather information of what's happening and then you use it to advocate for your elected officials, that is a, that is enough. And really that is, is how we all together as a community, as a country can actively move closer seeing a humane immigration reform and fixing our broken immigration system. Thank you so much for sharing such incredible insight on the immigration system that we currently have in America and all of the holes in there and the consequences of the current system and what we can do about it to change it. And I want to thank you for that and for sharing your story as well because that was what really just shows us why this is so important to you and to so many others who have gone through the same experiences that you have. So thank you so much, Jose, for being here today and sharing all of this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, 
rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.